0: Hello everyone, um, so my next guest has a degree in psychology, a master's in clinical psychology, a master's in sports psychology and specialised training in CBT. She has spoken at Seminar, she has been the agony aunt on Today FM and she runs her own consultation that helps individuals, sports teams and companies. She has been the sports psychologist of the All Ireland winning Wexford Hurling team and the Irish Olympic team for three Olympic Games. It's clear that she knows how to get the most out of people and I'm here to find out why. Welcome to the podcast, Mew Fitzpatrick.
1: It's a luxury to pursue what makes you happy. It's a moral obligation to pursue what you find meaningful. And that doesn't mean it's easy. It might require sacrifice. When perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun
0: spread the word on mental health so when other people are in this position in the future, they know where to go and they know what to do, because there's a blueprint I think everybody is stuck in the same cycle of looking at how we need to throw money, more money at mental illness and the problem will go away, but it's the incorrect way to look at it So you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations, right? Through no fault of their own through so no fault of the. Understanding how our mind works, how our emotions work, can help us understand how to get more satisfaction in life. How are you?
1: I'm good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You're welcome. Um, so I'm going to start by um, going into your sports psychology uh, background and then move on to more general mental health problems, if that's okay. Um, so loads of people are constantly being bombarded. They're constantly hearing about sports psychologists coming into professional clubs. But I think something that's not known is what exactly do sports psychologists do?
1: Well, so if you think about an athlete in any sport, they have a talent in that sport. Yeah. So they might be able to swim or run, or kick a ball or ride a horse. But when it comes to the competitive aspect of that sport, it's can they reproduce that? Under pressure, Hmm. when it's one day, one chance, one kick, one opportunity. Um, And what happens often in sport is people learn the sport in the beginning. So they learn the physical skills of the sport, how to kick the ball or the swimming stroke or whatever it is. And as they go on, maybe they learn a bit about, I suppose, the fitness aspect of the sport um, and how to condition themselves. But what they don't tend to learn is what happens with the psychological side of the sport. So what happens when they're out there and maybe they feel an abundance of nerves beforehand? Yeah. Possibly maybe paused by nerves or halted by nerves or what happens when their confidence appears to desert them? They, they mm. felt so confident in the training field, but they get out to the competitive field and they begin to doubt themselves. Yeah. How do they come back from, you know, mistakes and bounce back from errors all of those kind of things and the sports psychologist will, will come into the team or work with the individuals to help train them in that regard the way the fitness trainer will train in that regard
0: so is the thing there where you would speak generally to the whole team or would you individualize it for each player generally in a, in a team sport for example
1: so if I go into a team, what I do first is I introduce myself to the players as a group, as a whole, for sure. Okay. And, you know, who am I? What do I do? What is sports psychology? What is it not? So I'm not going to, you know, be doing therapy with you, putting you on a <laughs> that's couch. What and I
0: think a lot of people think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I think that's important to dispel that myth and mm. to say, you know, I, I can't read your mind as a player. I won't be reading your mind. I Don't want to read your mind.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But what I will be doing is helping you learn the psychological skills to help move towards optimum performance. So I do that group chat first. Okay. And then what I do is I would see all the players individually because it is a team, but it's a team of individuals. Yeah. And what we want from the psychology perspective is we want to move towards optimum performance for each individual player. Which in turn will bring us around to that place of optimum performance for the team. Okay. So I would meet each player individually, maybe 30 minutes, uh, looking at, you know, what's going on in their life. So what demands do they have on them outside of sport? It might be study. Yeah. If they're an older player, it could be family, business situation, um, and then we start looking at. Maybe their own game. So what are their strengths? What are the weaknesses in the game? How have they been in terms of injury, in terms of health? Mm. What's working for them? What needs work? What are the, maybe the management asking from them as a player? And what are they finding that they're able to deliver each week? And where are the gaps? Okay. And we start to assess really both at an individual level and on a squad level. What are the needs from a psychological perspective? So is it confidence? Is it emotional control? Is it resilience? Is it cohesion? Is it all of the above? Yeah. And then I would go back in in a group perspective and I would teach the skills that come up okay. from the whole squad. I would teach them in a group perspective because the chances are most of them are going to need them. And then it becomes an ongoing issue where some players might only really see you in those group situations yeah. and they might see you for a few individual consults hmm. but actually there are other players who will see you a lot and I'm talking about players in this instance but obviously this applies to any team or any sport I was
0: also going to ask then like do you work with the management then or is it players only or
1: no brilliant question that because for me that's key okay. um, I absolutely work with the management so the way I would see it is it's about helping each person who's involved with this squad to achieve optimum performance in whatever their role is so sometimes it will be um, work with some of the backroom team but very often um, it's working with the players individually and with the as a unit but it's working with that management team too and it might be things around communication skills it might be helping bridge a gap maybe between an understanding of a manager and an understanding of a player who yeah. I can see that they're in a sort of a face mm. off and I can see where each is coming from and it's helping translate that really. Yeah. Um, for me of all the work I do, I love my work. If I, if I win the lottery, I'm still going to do this. Um, but actually that team environment is the one that probably excites me most because as a psychologist, it's the biggest job yeah. you are responsible for, sometimes a panel of 35 players, mm-hmm. a backroom team of maybe, you know, 15 and a management team of maybe four. And you, whenever they come looking for you, you're you're needed. So it's a big job.
0: Yeah, of course. And now like, I know this is the big question, but um, in general, what is the main problem that you normally come across where athletes aren't performing to the top of their level?
1: So what I find is that what tends to happen, it's either that somebody is not putting in the work that they need to put in on the training field. They, they are putting in the work, yeah. but not to the level it has to be, not to the level of detail and attention and a focus that it has to be, not to the level of excellence that we want it. So when they get then to the competitive field, actually it's not there in the tank.
0: Yeah. Or
1: I find people who are putting the work in, in the tr- on the training field, but they are not bringing the acknowledgement of that with them to the competitive field. So it's almost like they have all this good stuff there, this stored up bank of skills and abilities and capabilities on the sports field. But mentally then when they get to the competitive field, mm. they doubt themselves. They think about, you know, what if I don't do well? What if I let people down? What if I make a mistake? Um, and they're not thinking about, well, how have I trained for this? How am I ready? What yeah. work have I put in? Um, what's really good about what I've done? What's the progress I've made so far? Mm. Um, and I think what, what part of the psychology piece is about helping somebody learn. How do you respond to those thoughts in your head around? What if I make a mistake?
0: Yeah. And then the, the cognitive behavioral therapy would be a big aspect in this. Then what is the difference? I think I came across you referred to it as useful and useless thoughts.
1: Not useless, but useful. useful yes, thoughts. useful. Okay. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, will talk about the idea of our thinking being helpful. And I, I call it, I like to think of it as being emotionally pragmatic. Okay. You know. Am I helping myself with the way I look at any situation? If I'm a if I'm a player on a sports field or an athlete in any sport, do I serve myself well with the perspective I take on this particular situation? Okay. And so for me, I slightly tweak it in that I think of useful thinking. I think it's a bit stronger than helpful. It's just to say, is that useful? Will that, you know, will that serve you Mm. well? And I find there's a nice grip on that word. And people really get what I mean when I say, are you thinking usefully about that? And there's a move away for me around that idea of the positive thinking. There's nothing wrong with positive thinking, but actually for most of us or for a lot of us, and certainly for athletes in sport, it can be too far Mm. because sport is tough life is tough both are also wonderful yeah but they can be tough so you know when when you're maybe you're coming back from injury and you can't find your form maybe you made a mistake that it was a mistake that cost a game and you're trying to get your head around that thinking positively is not going to help you yeah whereas if you consider that idea of what if i engage my mind to look at what's the most useful way I can look at this now do I beat myself up do I put a full stop after it do I see that it's a comma do I ask myself well what did I learn I always say to to, to athletes if you could get a remote control for your television and you could rewind it press rewind in it and rewind that game or that event or rewind the weeks beforehand what would you do where would you stop it and it's a wonderful question because they they will say to me, well, I know, I know I played really badly at the weekend because I was exhausted. Work had me travelling to three different counties and I was so tired and I didn't really give my practice enough. And they were able to tell me that if I was to go back and change it, I would have rearranged my life diary better that week. So for me, the, the help in the sports psych space helping somebody learn how to deal with the realities of things like that
0: yeah an organization that i'm assuming is key as well
1: huge life and that's one of the reasons why when i see an athlete or indeed any client because i don't only work with sports people um one of the first things i want to do is get a snapshot a picture of their life mm-hmm. so you know maybe what's their home situation what's their work or study situation What, as I said, are the other demands on them? What are the things that are calling maybe on their attention or their energy? And what we're trying to get there is a sense of how much then has this person got left to give to the sports arena? And then are their expectations reasonable with that? If you have maybe, say, if you had a 16-year-old or 17-year-old who is in school, heading into maybe, let's say they're 17, so they're going to leave in search year. Yeah. So... Exams coming up, state exams, decent size on them. And this youngster maybe is playing, we just say football. Say they're playing football for a club. They might play football for a school. They might play football for their county in minors. So there's a lot of demands on that person there. And if that's somebody who within the scope of that, if they want the high scores in the Leaving Cert, if they want the high performance in all of those teams, well, for me, something there is not going to work in terms of the maths. Yeah, There's only so many hours in the that, week.
0: That's very interesting, actually, because I know that that's a common issue where parents are like, do we, if the child is focusing on their future, should they drop a sport? Even though this is the prime of their as sporting as well, coming up to the minor age as well, it's difficult. Do you think it depends on the person on whether they need to drop something or do you just think that everybody should or what's your opinion on that
1: so i'd rarely use the word should Should. yeah so um you're not really going to hear that from me too much my feeling on that was you look at a case-by-case basis you look at the individual child youngster teenager you look at the demands of the sport on them and usually what it will mean is some sort of a tweaking the year of the leaving cert so it's not maybe drop it it might be drop down a bit in it or it might be there's certain periods of time where if you like the school work has to move into center stage in their life and the sport work has to just move over to side stage but that becomes temporary there's a huge benefit to anybody who is whether they're in sport or not, but especially if they're already in sport, there's a huge benefit to them to continue doing that sport in that leaving search year. It gives them movement. It gives Mm. them, maybe if it's fresh air, if it's an outside sport, it might give them connection if it's a team sport. It gives them a focus and a purpose and a drive that's different than this overwhelming, you know, series of books (laughs) in front of them. So I would be very reticent to, you know, suggest, I certainly wouldn't suggest it that somebody drops a sport, but if somebody came into leaving search year, doing three or four sports, which I will often see, then I would be talking about balance. Okay. So what's the balance here? Looking at things like sleep, like rest, like connection with friends, like downtime, looking at study, looking at practice, looking at fun. Mm. you know so we look at balance and actually what tends to happen because I feel people are their own best experts and all we are as psychologists for example are facilitators to help them find that and so usually when we start this conversation the youngster in front of me or indeed the adult if it's an adult situation they will say actually I know what I need to do yeah I'm going to pause this sport and this sport I'm going to keep this one because this is the one that makes my heart sing. Mm. And I will at the same time focus on my
0: that's um, study. this is leading on to another interesting question then as well, because I know from experience that this is something that parents have faced. You have a child who is extremely talented at a sport, but at that moment in time, they're not interested. And the parent is trying to weigh up the options of if they stick with it, they, w- they might enjoy it in the future and they could make a career out of it even. But at the moment, they're not enjoying it. So do they push or do they step back? <laughs> You're shaking
1: your head. I am, I'm trying to stop my head from shaking so much <laughs> that it comes off my shoulders. For me, it's about not win at all costs, not anything at all costs. It's about that child. So center of this is the child. And it's if you think about it first, whatever that child's sport is, they're a child first, they're a person first. Mm. And they're not going to have that childhood back. And so my feeling is anybody, whether it's a parent or guardian, whether it's a coach, whether it's psychologists in that sports space, our jobs are to facilitate the best balance for that child. And, And as I have had often before, say, parents with me with a youngster who really is distressed in their sport. There are times when that distress comes from distress comes from a child who wants to do the sport, but who doesn't have the psychological skills to navigate the difficulties of the sport. Okay. So they beat themselves up when things don't go right. Yeah. They feel sick with nerves before they go out. There are some cases where you can teach the child those skills, or the teenager say those skills, and they then feel more comfortable in that sports environment and the fail, try again. Fail, try like try again, piece, Mm. and then the joy comes back. Right. What you're looking to assess there is, is this a child who's just lost that love and feeling for what they're doing? Yeah. Or is it a child who loves it but is afraid of it? Mm. And if it's the second one, you teach the skills and let's see what happens. If it's the first one, I would be very clear around this: that for me, when I'm asked my opinion, it is not okay to sacrifice. A child's sort of perfect. presence for what might happen in their future. future.
0: Yeah, that makes that's perfect answer. Um, and then just moving back to what you were talking about earlier, um, are the dynamics different or do you approach it differently in general um, with individual sports and then team sports? Is it completely different or is the same um, influences still a, a big factor?
1: There's loads of questions in that question. (laughs) (laughs) Loads of layers. Okay, so individual sports and team sports, yes, very different. Um, There's an isolation to an individual sport. If you think of the spotlight on the individual athlete, take somebody from athletics, for example. Um, If they win, it's all on them. If they lose, it's all on them. Mm -hmm. In the team sport, if we win, it's all on us. If we lose, it's all on us. Yeah. So there's a shared responsibility in the team space that can feel almost a buffering sort of feeling. It sort of maybe doesn't feel as exposed as the individual athlete. Yeah. So there are differences within that space for sure. And then again, the individual athlete, athlete has more autonomy. Maybe they're just working with their coach and their backroom team of fitness and physio and doctor and psych. Um, and nutritionists, for example. But with the team situation, you have to take into account those other people who are mm. around you. So there's, there's more factors. That being said, for me, I actually deal with the two of them the same, okay. in that I see whether you come to me and you're a hurler or a hockey player or whatever of a team sport, or if you come to me and you are the golfer or the swimmer, tennis player. I will see you as an individual first. And then if you're in a team space, we will connect the dots of that after we've taught you everything you need to learn to be optimum in that individual space first. Yeah. Does that make sense? That
0: makes complete
1: sense. Yeah, perfect.
0: Um, And then moving back to kind of what you were talking about earlier. Um, So you're in a situation where you're after working extremely, extremely hard with a team. And then the result then is that on the final hurdle, they don't make it. Um, What do you say to a team that basically has put in that work and they don't get the result they want?
1: So the the first thing you do is you guide them to feel the feelings. So it's not about going straight from that hurt of loss. And I say that word designedly because it's an absolute hurt Mm. when, you know, people in sport sacrifice whatever they're going to sacrifice in their life to be able to train, to work, to prepare. They are so ready for this. They feel that they're so ready for this. Mm. And then it just doesn't get over the line on the day. And there's a hurt around that. Were we not good enough? Why were we not good enough? Will we ever be good enough? All those things come in. And the most important thing immediately after the loss, is to actually feel those feelings. And even the ugly feelings, the anger, you know, it's really important. And it might sound in the bigger scheme of things to people in real life, when we have issues in real life that are huge, it might sound like big words to say that somebody might hurt after losing a sporting competition. But that's the truth of what happens, is that it is hurt. Mm. Because you do in sport put yourself on the line when you go out there each week to see, can I? Can I do this? So my first thing would always be to say, feel the feelings, and to say to them, so whatever you're going to feel over the next couple of days, let it come.
0: Mm. It, it's funny though as well because I've been in that situation. I've been in that dressing room after a match, and you'll see some people they'll have to head down, they won't talk to anybody. You'll see other people angry, giving out that the ref should have gave that or that that person that was a foul. You have other people who are completely oblivious. They don't care. They're after losing the match. They're looking forward to going out later or something like that. There's so many different emotions in a team dressing room after a loss. And it's, yeah. it's really interesting how different they are.
1: And it's about that's why I keep coming back with the team to the individual piece, because it's about allowing each individual to respond as appropriate for them. So part of the work that you will have done as a sports psych back in the you know, weeks and months before maybe that loss that we might be talking about is you've done some work around the culture in the team and looking at respecting each other and that we allow each other to feel what we feel. And just because you're teammates doesn't mean you're the same in everything you do. Mm. And each is valid. So, you know, whatever that response is within that dressing room. And I, you know, I've been in the winning dressing room and times and I've been in the losing dressing room at times. And it is, they, they really are the complete opposites, the utter joy, the utter and complete to every cell of your body joy when you come back in having got a win because you all did what you were supposed to do yeah. and the complete. Hurt and devastation when you lose because you just weren't good enough. Mm. Um, and I think it's about allowing feel that those feelings, yours and let others feel theirs. But then I would be directing, after a bit of space and time has gone on, then I, we'd start looking at, let's look back and learn the lessons. Yeah. And, you know, for me, that's around what were we aiming to do? What did we actually do? What's the gap between the two? What, and a really a question I often get is sort of a, um, a surprised um, wide eyed look when I ask this question of a team where we have lost, is I say to them, what worked? I often, after sport, get people to think about two things. Whether you win, lose or draw, I want you to look at what worked and what needs work.
0: Okay.
1: So what you're doing there for any event is you're getting used to seeing your performance in terms of balance. Mm. Even those days where we lose, there are some things within that individually. And as a team, if you're in a team sport, there are some things that have worked. Yeah. What are they? Extract them, go after them. And the same way, what needs work? That's the bit around the gaps between what we expected to do and what we actually did. What's key is usually in sport when people do win, when they do get over the line, when they do achieve their goals, they still don't do that exercise. They mm. still should go after what needs work. Yeah. But, you know, so for me, there's a balance in that whether you win, lose or draw. I like any client that I work with to get used to what worked and what needs work. And that's probably where I would start that process of um, reviewing after that match that has been a heavy loss.
0: Okay. And I think this is a good segue then into, so dealing with this loss and stuff is a good segue into resilience, building resilience. This is a moment, uh, this is the word at the moment that is basically being thrown out a lot, that um, particularly in the environment we're in, that children need to be more resilient. To you yourself, what is resilience?
1: For me, I think resilience is about... The ability to bounce back Mm. from obstacles, tough times, disappointments, defeats, things that happen to us that knock us down, that come crashing into us like a freight train, physically, emotionally, in whatever way, Mm. and they they put us to our feet. So what do we do? Do we lie down and stay down or do we find the way somehow to get back up? And that resilience piece for me is about that.
0: Okay. And do you think it's something that some have and some don't? Or is it something that anybody can learn?
1: I think you can learn. Okay. I think it's like anything. I think it's like speed or it's like strength or it's like endurance. I think it's like composure. I think we will have different, um, how shall I say it? We'll have maybe different baselines on it. Yeah. But I think most of us can move from those baselines with some improvement so it's about understanding for me it's about understanding what's the difference between me when i am in that resilient space where i can listen to the voice that's saying to me and whispering to me get up yeah one more time just get up just get up just keep going what's the difference with me in terms of what i'm paying attention to in that moment versus the moment when i say i'm done I I can't do this anymore. This is too hard. I'm not good enough. And, and, And for me, that's not about you as the athlete who has changed in that moment or you as the person, even if we take it out of sport, that's about your focus of attention that's changed in the moment where you're able to be resilient and bounce back. You are thinking in a way that is useful. Maybe that whatever it is that's happened, maybe you fail an exam, maybe you know, a relationship ends. Yeah. Something happens in your life that knocks you off your feet. Well, the useful way to go at that from my perspective is to... F- I'm going to be like a broken record here. Is to feel the feelings first. Okay. And to say, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be scared. Some big thing has happened in my life. Let me stop and feel that. Yeah. But then when those first waves of feelings have passed it then becomes about saying so where am I now and if I was to get back up on my feet and have another go at the repeat exam or if I was to think one day not now but one day about being in another relationship Mm. and to bounce back so that I'm not letting that thing that happened to me crush me forever I'm not letting it be a full stop in my life What do you have to focus on to do that? Well, to do that, you have to be very careful about the attribution you make when something happened to you. So you have to be able to say, well, I failed that exam because I didn't study or I failed that exam because actually those questions were particularly tough. Mm. Whereas if you say, I failed that exam because I'm stupid, then it becomes much more difficult to move into that resilience piece and believe that you can get back up.
0: OK, so you're kind of saying that the the useful thoughts, as you mentioned, are a stepping stone to build in resilience, that without them, it's going to be quite difficult, so you kind of need them.
1: Yeah, I think what you have to do is look at and this is the phrase I would always use. What's the story you're telling yourself about this situation? Okay. So if you think that now we're sitting in a room that has a round table that has six chairs uh, around it and it's almost like, you know, each of those chairs is a perspective. So we can each see this room now from the perspective we're sitting at around the table. But if mm-hmm. both of us got up and we moved to opposite places in the table, we'd see the same room, but we'd see it from a different perspective. Yeah. And that when something happens to us in life, and I mean something objective. So losing a match or failing an exam or a relationship ending are objective, hard, cold facts. Yeah. But we have a choice as to the story we tell ourselves about that. What's the chair you're hopping in around the room? And how are you looking at that room? Are you saying, for example, you know, this is it. It's my fault. It's always gonna be like this. Things will never change. I've messed up my chance now. Are you looking at it with that perspective? Or are you saying, I'm gutted. I am gutted. But I'm still here. And when I've licked my wounds, I will find the way and the time to just gently learn the lessons and go again. Mm. That's what I mean about the perspective. And that's what I mean about the useful thinking. And that's what I mean about the story you tell yourself.
0: Okay. Um, and then you've also spoken about in the past as well. This, there is situations that could happen to anybody where the helpful thoughts aren't, are the uh, use, useful thoughts aren't helping and sometimes people just need to reach out and seek help as well. Um, what advice would you give? Because there's a massive problem in this country at the moment where if somebody's going to a psychologist or somebody seeing a therapist, there's something severely wrong with them. For anybody who's kind of on that fence, who can't seem to build that resilience, can't seem to get out of that negative place that they're in now, what advice would you give them for seeking help?
1: Well, my first thought really on that one is actually, for me, the useful thinking is part of being... No, to the way around, being okay with going to talk to somebody
0: mm.
1: professionally is part of the useful thinking. So I'm a psychologist. I won't go into the, the details of it, but I'm a psychologist and I have had cause over the last few years to see a psychologist myself. Okay. Now, as a psychologist, for me, it's always been a useful thing to do. There's that word again, a useful thing to do the whole way through my career. I would always at my life, I would always hop in and out of different sessions with different therapists. It's mm. important to be able to be in the client seat. It's all important to be able to make sure my own life is running well so that I'm free and clear to give a client everything they need when they sit in front of me. Yeah. But some events have meant that I have needed something more than that. And for me, that useful thinking was about not expecting myself to handle things all by myself, mm. to say, I'm a human being if I needed my appendix out would I think that I would get a spoon and I would do that no I need a surgeon to do that Yeah why would I why would I expect that I can do everything myself so the I would actually wrap those up that being okay with asking for help bit I wrap that up in that useful thinking space mm-hmm. and when you think of that bit that you said that you know in this country if people go to psychologist or a counsellor or a therapist of some sort that there's something wrong that idea that there's something wrong i suppose my feeling on that is well for starters the people in your life who will support you in whatever you need to do to go to find that piece of you that can bounce back well those people who are your people your tribe if you like they're going to support you the others are not going to sit around your table at Christmas dinner. Mm. So why do you, who, wh- what? Like, why do we care? If if Bob down the road thinks I'm silly for me being a psychologist and going to have to see a psychologist, well, as far as I'm concerned, that's Bob's problem. That's not my problem. Yeah. Off you go, Bob. Mm. I'm fine. I found my resilience piece and how I've done it is my business. Yeah. I think we're in a world where there's much more... Um, There's much more of a belief that people can get into our business and can say to us, you shouldn't wear that or you shouldn't say that. Now, let me give a caveat on that. Sometimes people shouldn't say things they say and that needs to be called. So I'm just distinguishing that. But, you know, you shouldn't say this. You shouldn't believe this. You shouldn't wear that. You shouldn't do that. Hmm. Well, I would add, you, sh- you shouldn't get in my business. Mind your own business. Yeah. And I think there's a maybe a bit of a resilience piece there around being able to stand on our own two feet and say, whatever the world thinks, what do I think? Yeah. And do I think that what I need now is to go to somebody who can teach me how to handle that Leaving her stress or who can teach me how to manage the expectations of sporting competition or whatever it is. Mm. And if you think that and your guardians and your parents and or your 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 wife or your husband, depending where you are in your life, if, if the people around you are with you in that, then let the world think what they like. I think there's something around that, that we need to move more into that space mm.
0: And and also the exact point as well is that you think you can control what other people think, and you you can't. It's 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 a waste of time trying to.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that world that we live in around likes. So if you if you look at say Twitter, obviously there's likes on Twitter. Yeah. Instagram. I'm not on Instagram, but I know enough about mm. it. I hear enough about it. So, you know, it, it's it's uh, a YouTube followers, all this kind of thing, and it's it's almost this thing around, you know. Maybe there's a sense of how much value we have as people if we have more of those likes, if we have more of those followers. But really, like, really, is that really what it's about? My feeling is, and I would often say this to people there is not one person on this planet who shares the combination of your unique gene pool and your unique experience in life. Mm. there is not one person yeah there might be somebody who has your same name somebody who looks like you you might have siblings or a family and they share some of your genes but nobody has the combination of both so who on earth can do you or be you better than you Mm. there isn't anyone and it's more about for me it's more about i'd love to see us bringing things back into saying You know, for people to be able to say, I understand there's a world out there. I understand that world out there might like what I do or not like what I do. But actually, the value that I will place highest is on what I like and what I want to do and what I believe in. Mm. I think we're too swayed at the moment around what other people think of. And if you think of the ideas of, you know, self-esteem or my preference is self-acceptance. Think of self-acceptance. Look at the first word. It's self. Is, yeah. It's self-image, self-concept, self-esteem, self-acceptance. It's not other, all of those. And we, I think we need to move a little way from that to have people in a place where they can feel that it's okay to value me. Even what I think. If what I think is different to what the masses think. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: That makes sense. Um, can I go back as well? You mentioned you prefer self-acceptance. Why do you prefer that?
1: Because I think it's the starting point. Okay. I think when we can look at ourselves and say. I'm so I, I'll, I'll be personal here and say if somebody said to me, describe yourself, I would say. I'm loyal, kind hot-headed, impatient, Um, you know, I'd go on a list like this. And even if you see in those first couple of words, there's a couple that would be maybe put in the nice-to-have camp and a couple that might not be. I mean, who wants to be hot-headed or impatient? But the truth is, as a person naturally, they are my natural tendencies. Over years of training and working in the sports space, I've learned to become patient Hmm. I've learned to become composed rather than hot-headed but there's still a thread of that in there and me of of course course there is and I and I see that now as being spirited so my point is is when you can look at yourself and say who I am is a combination of all these things the good the bad the rotten and the ugly you were at a place of self-acceptance where you you're not saying I'm going to stay as I am there might be some things you want to work on yeah But that place of self-acceptance and saying nobody can be me better than me and I am as I am. And for me to want to be somebody else is for me to throw away who I am. Mm. When you can get to that place, it is the greatest sense of peace. That's probably why I like self-acceptance over anything else.
0: It's a good answer. (laughs) Thank you. Um, My final question then is related to resilience again. There are parents at the moment and there's teachers at the moment that they want to raise and they want to teach children to become more resilient on a day-to-day basis. Now, this is a wide open question. It can be aimed at any age. How can you help somebody become more resilient?
1: I'm going to put a caveat in there. First, I think the systems need to become more resilient first. I think to ask people, or maybe not first, but as well as, I think it's not okay to say to a child or a teenager or an adult, that you must be resilient. I think we must look at the systems that we have in the home, in the sports ground, um, in the school, in life in general. We must look at those systems and we must see, are those systems ones that are squeezing people And and the resilience piece is about asking them to keep handling being squeezed. That's not okay. Mm. So the system, there needs to be some resilience um, in that system sort of space first. But in terms of personal resilience, if you said, how do I, how would I teach somebody how to do that? I would start them off with an introduction to that cognitive behavioral therapy piece. It's not the only therapy. We talk about it a lot, but there's many more aspects of therapy and psychology, really good pieces. There's something about the CBT bit when it's taught well. I think that can really help somebody understand that we we can get into the driving seat even when the awful things happen to us. We still have choices. So I'd probably start off there with helping somebody learn some of those skills and then moving towards what are the cognitive and indeed the behavioral habits that they're doing in their life that can help them feel that readiness to bounce back. Mm. That's where I would go.
0: There's actually a few people now in this podcast so far that have actually made that point also. Um And I don't know if it's confirmation bias, but would would you be in agreement then um that teaching a child how to use cognitive behavioral therapy, they don't need to be mentally ill or have mental health problems. It's useful for anybody.
1: Absolutely. One hundred percent. For sure. This for me is a skill set. And again, Mm. I want to be really clear. I value many types of of therapy under that psychology umbrella. But certainly this CBT piece, this bit of understanding that how you feel is influenced also by life, but also how you think. And I do it, for example, I, I use music sometimes to teach it. So one of the things I'll do, and especially with youngsters, is I might play a song that is maybe more of a mellow song, and I might ask them how they feel when they've listened to a verse of that song. And sometimes they'll say, relaxed. Sometimes they'll say, you know, sad, mellow, whatever. And then I play another song, maybe something like a Disney song. And when I they've listened to a verse of that, I say, so how do you feel now? Do you feel exactly the same now as you did when you listened to the first song? Mm. And they say, no. Well, all right, then tell me, how do you feel? And they'll say, well, I feel giddy, I feel uplifted, I feel happy. And what happens is, is when we discuss what they're doing in their head, where is their focus of attention when they listen to the first song versus where is their focus of attention when they listen to the second song? You know, what's happening differently? So we think in words, we think in pictures, we think in memories, we think in associations. And when they hear the Disney song, no matter what age they are, They see, if it was, say, the Bear Necessities from the Jungle Book, they see that bear dancing in the jungle with all the colour of Disney. Mm. and Or if they're an adult, it maybe brings them back to watching that with their child or being there as a child and watching it. And those images in their head, those memories, those associations, that focus of attention is driving the state of uplift. And we look then maybe later on about how do you apply that to your real life? That understanding that how I see something, the story I tell myself, the images I see in my head, that that's going to influence, in part, how I feel. Yeah,
0: that's very well explained. And now just we're coming towards the end because I'm conscious of time. But I want to talk about briefly, you mentioned, which I was not aware of. um, You have a book coming out. Yes. Um, Can you talk a bit about that? What exactly will be included in the book?
1: Okay, so the book is called Tell Me the Truth About Loss. Um, It's published by Gill. It's coming out on May 1st, now 2020. How
0: can people get it?
1: People can pre-order it actually through Eason's or Dubray or Amazon. Uh, Through all of those methods, you can pre-order it now. Um, And it's a book really about loss in life. So I talk about the loss through bereavement and other ways because... Loss isn't only about death, loss is about change in life when something Mm. happens in your life and your life isn't the way you wanted it to be. And I look at loss, I look at grief, but in some ways, in the same way as maybe an oncologist who is living with cancer might talk about their journey. And what you have in that is you have the perspective of the patient and you have the perspective of the medic. In, In the same way with me as a psychologist, looking at my own feelings of grief and loss and struggling my way through that and I have struggled my way through that um, looking at that but coming out with this sense of hope at the end of the book you know and even I would say threaded through the book but certainly by the end spaces of the book that real sense of hope and what happens you know I talk about really um, life after awful finding your way through those awful things that happen us in life and that there is an awful, there is a life after that awful, I should say. Mm. And so it's really about that piece of hope in okay, the face maybe. of loss and grief.
0: Okay. Um, and then final point then, Neve, I'm sure after people listening to this, they'll be interested in um, more of your work. Where can people find you?
1: Uh, NiamhFitzPatrickPsychology.ie
0: Perfect. Um, any social media, Twitter or?
1: Oh, yeah. at N Psychology on Twitter. Perfect.
0: Okay. Um, I want to thank you very, very much for doing this again. And um, I'll definitely be getting your book anyway. I look forward to it, but we'll be sure to
1: include it in the show notes as well, where people can find it. Thank Thanks you. very much.